0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tanya Tolar, the host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Lisa Riley about her new book, The Invention of Norman Visual Culture Art, Politics, and Dynastic Ambition, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. I, for one, love the title of this book. The Invention of Norman Visual Culture, and I'm excited to be talking to Lisa about ways Normans used art to legitimize their rule and the interplay of art, politics, and dynastic ambition across medieval Europe. Lisa Riley, welcome to
1: the show. Thank you so much.
0: Lisa, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about uh, yourself and perhaps what your current research is on.
1: Sure. Um, I'm a faculty member. I'm actually the Commonwealth Professor of Architectural History at the University of Virginia. Um, So I teach in the School of Architecture, and I also teach in the Art History program in a PhD program here. Um, I'm the medieval architectural historian, and my current project's actually quite different from the Norman book. I've gone back to something I worked on while doing my master's at York University and I'm looking at the 16th century stained glass program at the Church of Saint Michael le Belfry, right next to York Minster. Oh, fabulous!
0: I'm already looking forward to someone who's interested in glass and it's been researching glass for my own PhD uh, topic. So it's something that uh, I'll definitely come back to you when that gets published. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Um, Okay, so in the recent years, there has been a growing interest in the Norman visual culture, especially into the study of Norman Sicily. Among others, Isabel Lejalek's book on Arabic script on Christian kings, The Royal Garments from Norman Sicily, was published in 2017, and Winkler Fitzgerald and Smalls' edited volume Designing Norman Sicily Material Culture and Society, published in 2020, that comes to mind as well. So what is your explanation for such an interest in the Normans? And if I may, the sub-question, where does your own interest in the Normans come from?
1: Well, my own interest in the Normans um, did not start with Norman Sicily by any means. Um, I was researching my PhD topics and ended up choosing Peterborough Cathedral in England as the subject of my dissertation and as the subject of my first book cuz it's actually the best preserved Romanesque cathedral in England and hence by the Normans who rebuilt virtually all of England after the 1066 conquest. Um, so that, that's how I got interested in Normans without really knowing very much about Normans at all. I have to say initially, I just thought they were people from, from Northwestern France. Um, and while I was finishing that up, I had the opportunity to visit Sicily, um, which I wanted to do cause I kept, you know, people did not really talk about Sicily very much. This is in the late 80s. They didn't really talk about the Mediterranean. I mean, in the book, I talk about this, about how Sicily is this kind of outlier. Um, A very famous architectural historian describes it as exotic and spicy. (laughs) You know, It's something that doesn't fit in at all. And so I was able to do this trip to Sicily while I was actually house-sitting in in Tuscany for a year writing my dissertation. And um, I was just really struck by these monuments that look so different from Peterborough, or Ely, or Durham, or saint et And I thought, I know exactly what I want to do my next book on, because I knew I had to finish my dissertation and do my first book. I have to look at these and figure out how the same group of people Produce things that look so completely different and what was going on with that. So that's, that's really how it started. So it was a project with a pretty long genesis. I have to say, I worked on this for quite a long time off and on, but, but that's where it began. Cause I just thought, how are these the same guys who built Peterborough Cathedral and they have these, you know, McCarnis ceilings and all this stuff in Sicily.
0: Well, that, that's really interesting because I started from the other end. So my first visit was actually to Sicily and I did my uh, my master's degree. Uh, my, my dissertation was on uh, the Mucarnas in in, in Palermo. So, um, you know, I know only now, basically, when I am based in the UK, Uh, UK, I am tracing all these steps of Norman architecture (laughs) that you are writing about in your book. So it's quite interesting how we are basically complementing our own research here. Um, But you say, um, I think what fascinated me in the first instance about this book was really bringing all these three um, territories uh, together, so uh, France and Normandy, um, the British Isles, or England and um, uh, Sicily. Um, so you're talking about the same group of people, you said. Um, who were these people? Who who are these people called Normans?
1: Well, the I mean, it's not identically the same people. It's the same group of people. Um, the Normans, the name um, actually comes from Normanni, meaning the Northmen, because the, originally um, France, like many parts of Western Europe, is undergoing raids from Vikings, from Scandinavia. You know, they're, if you watch... The History Channel or whatever channel it's on in Britain, there's there are certainly enough TV shows showing you these dramatic scenes of Vikings attacking, you know, Lindisfarne in places. Um, so they're also coming into France and actually sailing up the Seine, which has its mouse in Normandy, goes through Normandy and all the way to Paris. And um, at a certain point, the French king um, realizes what a bad idea this is, basically, to have Normans sailing up to Paris, and, and cuts a deal with them, where they can have this territory in northwestern France that had been part of the Carolingian Empire, known as Neustria, Um, And so they can have this Northwestern territory, basically if they'll contain themselves to that area and also convert to Christianity, because essentially they're the last group of people who have not converted to Christianity. And so um, the Treaty of Ept and whatever year it is now, I can't remember (laughs) 9-11 or something um, is signed and they settle down in this area. There's quite a bit of debate about how much they Um, kind of integrate with the local population, you know, about language and whether women are coming from Scandinavia or they're intermarrying, but there's clearly this arrival of this new group of people um, who convert at least nominally initially, but then within a generation or two go on to become really the major patrons of, um, of religious art and architecture in northwestern France.
0: Right. This is uh, something that you begin your book with. You basically introduce Normans to the reader and the setting of the scene of who Normans were, how did they rise to power and where this this expansionist politics led them in subsequent centuries. But um, it's definitely um, something to easily admire, this this story of success from Vikings to Normans. but was it really so straightforward? Was it really so easy? This um, integration, the settlements. And of course we we are talking about also using art to confirm that political ambition.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm an art historian rather than a historian, but um there isn't a sense that um, the like indigenous inhabitants of Normandy are resisting them and rising up against them, which is what happened when they go to England, um, where the Anglo Saxons are certainly resisting Norman conquest. Um, the there is debate about how much Scandinavian influence there is. You know, are Normans becoming completely Frenchified, or French people becoming more Scandinavianified? There is debate about that. They did have a phase during the raiding period where they were um, destroying a lot of these very early Merovingian monasteries along the banks of the Seine. Jumier, as I talk about is one of those that had experienced this kind of destruction. But then once they kind of established themselves. They seem to realize that in order to look like a ruler, you had to be doing certain things. And one of those things is patronizing um churches as well as, you know, other, I mean, they had other buildings as well. But the churches survive. They're very active. And they also bring in, some of the leading um, religious figures from like Lanfranc and people from other parts, St. Anselm, other parts of Europe um, to kind of reestablish and, um, you know, kind of solidify the kind of Christianity in the region. So they're very savvy and they seem to really um, have a sense of what's appropriate for a ruler. I mean, there's no... Viking King or anything like that. So this kind of, or Duke even, this kind of model hadn't existed. They're not familiar with this and bringing it with them from Scandinavia. But um, it seems like they kind of look around and begin to get this idea of how to be appropriate and how they, they seem to want to make sure that they look like legitimate rulers. And so they want to look like other people who are ruling as well, who are Christian patrons. Of art, um,
0: yes, exactly. This part of this success Normans enjoyed was also this exquisite sense for reformulation of local traditions and invoking those of rival political powers, in, tor- in order to reinvent and present themselves as as legitimate political leaders. Um, could you speak, or could we speak, even about? Um, Norman identity that could be seen or sensed through shared visual culture? Is there such a thing?
1: Well, I, I think that there is. I mean, one of my arguments in the book is it's not like they arrive and have this preformed Viking, you know, permanent monumental architecture that they're using but there are clearly, you know, there are aspects of the bio-embroidery, for example, that people yeah. frequently feel come from Viking traditions. Um, so what, what they I mean, the argument of the book is that they draw on a whole series of languages to formulate something that in the end seems to be distinctly theirs um, in terms of how they bring in ideas, whether it's from Burgundy or the Holy Roman Empire or these other um, areas, and and create this very distinctive architecture that's also um, just incredibly monumental. I mean, these buildings are huge; uh, they're you know some of the biggest buildings for all of the Middle Ages, really. Um, so they're putting a lot of resources financially into this endeavor. It's clearly very important to them. And these monast in in um, Normandy, they're mainly founding or refounding monasteries, depending. Um, and they're really monumental buildings that go on um, to be very influential in how medieval architecture continues to unfold. And you know, one of the other things I talk about is people have tended to look at Norman architecture, not for its own sake, but in terms of what Sujet took from it when you know he built Saint-Denis or you know what somebody from a later period took as if it's just sitting there practicing to be Gothic rather than being something on its own self. But I, I think that they're Um, very conscious of wanting to make an impression um, in how they draw on these ideas and models from other places, and yet their buildings don't look exactly like a Burgundian building or an imperial building. Um,
0: Right. So discussing Normans in, in France, you write, and I quote here, As an examination of Norman architecture reveals, the visual culture created under Norman patronage gave expression to the process which manifests continuity with local tradition, together with new ideas. It is through this mixedness, this hybridity, that a new cultural identity was formed, one that conveyed legitimacy and continuity together with newness, end of quote. So I guess... I'm tying in to what you've uh, just uh, explained to us, and with a question, how is this newness seen in Norman architecture in France? And if you can give us some uh, concrete examples.
1: Well, um, if you look at um, saint etienne et Caen, for example, which is one of the best-known Norman buildings... um, its elevation with this harmonic facade. I mean, having the Twin Towers is something you do see earlier in like Holy Roman Empire architecture, but the way that it aligns specifically with the composition of the building behind it seems to be new. Um, they do have timber, originally timber ceilings that's in it as well as elsewhere. Now they're stone vaults. So they can have those very large openings at um, ground level, middle level, and then the clear story above Um So that kind of compilation of elements, um, some of them reflecting earlier traditions, but put together in a new way. And then the scale of the buildings um, Mm -hmm. is really on a kind of imperial scale. So you don't see that so much in other in other churches in France. So, you know, they they are clearly aware of what's going on and they've brought these people in. Um, particularly from from Burgundy and other parts of France, where there's already been an ongoing um, monumental architectural tradition, but they don't copy exactly from any one place. So you know, there's there's a lot of debate about the exact sources, but those are some of the places that seem to be the most significant. Right.
0: It's very interesting the the scale um, and how they they managed to get it to that kind of a uh, huge buildings, especially when you think in what kind of huts the regular people would have left at the same time. Right. Yeah. And obviously building in, in stone as well, uh, rather than building in, in the wood. Uh, so I guess that's also not random. It's very much, um, uh, selected material.
1: Oh yeah. I think so. I mean, it's out of cost stone, calm Con being this area in lower Normandy. And, um, I mean, so they had good local materials because transportation of building materials is usually the most expensive part of a medieval building. Um, so they had the the kind of natural resources to build what they want. But, you know, I often say to my students, when you go into these churches, you know, even if you're a phenomenally rich person or a king, there's there's no place a normal person is living that's like this space, right? I mean, the scale, they probably were painted with bright colors. They have stained glass. The amount of glass, glass is phenomenally expensive, but even these early buildings have enormous um windows relative I mean most people had no windows, but even yeah. if you were rich, you didn't really have lots of windows and so it really is creating I always say this kind of heavenly space because it's like nothing on earth that you otherwise would have experienced when you go into these and it's not just Normans doing that, but they're certainly participating in this sense of creating this this kind of otherworldly zone with these enormous buildings. you know they don't have lavish sculptural de- decoration the way we see in um and for example, Burgundy or Provence, but um, they were probably painted to look pretty colorful, and the the scale as well. It's pretty over. I mean, even now when you drive across Normandy, you know they, they stick out on the landscape.
0: <laughs> yeah, and they're very humbling experience when you when you walk inside in the main yeah. nave. It's you, you you definitely feel this sort of uh, um, you know. Extraterrestrial, if I may say that word, is it? like It's <laughs> it's something beyond uh, my my regular life, right? It's, it's that exact uh, transcendence um, on towards which they are alluding, and it's also probably, if I sensed correctly from your book, um, something that they done on purpose in order to uh, establish their own political powers, and this is oh, my yeah. this is my statement for. My, the richness because obviously this money um needed to come from somewhere where where would the um normans in normandy get their money from to um re- erect such large buildings
1: well the the first wave of normans are getting it just because they're given all the land in normandy right i mean it's a feudal system and the king saying okay now it's yours <laughs> So so you're kind of rich from that. But a lot of the really big buildings come after the Norman conquest of England because England's one of the, England like Sicily is one of the wealthiest parts of Western Europe. So basically once William the Conqueror conquers or reclaims England, depending on your point of view about his right to rule there, he kind of starts, he resets the feudal system and all, he takes all the land away from the Anglo-Saxons or just about all the Anglo-Saxons and redistributes it to these people who are already, you know, it's kind of like the two percenters become the one percenter. I mean, they're already rich from the land in Normandy and now they're given these vast estates in England as well. And so in some cases, the buildings are a little bit later and the money's coming probably also from the fact that they now have these holdings in England too but they all you know they also build phenomenal buildings all over England as well. right.
0: So you mentioned England, so Norman conquest of England and this decisive battle at Hastings as 1066, sets this sort of scene for Norman presence on the British Isles. Mm-hmm. And uh, you write that, um, and I quote here as well, concept of legitimate kingship in 12th century Europe was multifaceted. Several terms have already been used in connection with kingship, legitimacy, continuity, and divine providence, end of quote. So how did they legitimize their presence across the English Channel? And particularly in art, what kind of visual tools did they use for it?
1: Well, you know, in England, William's claim is not that he's con- conquering like you have it and I want it. He's claiming that he is the legitimate legitimate ruler and that um, Edward the Confessor had promised it to him. And so he's going back, you know, and then that the Harold basically double-crosses him, um, and so he's going to claim what he says is rightfully his. So that's a really important part of the narrative, um, and that's the story, basically, I'm waving because I'm at my book, um, that's the story that the bioembroiderer, Embroiderer, bio Tapestry is telling, is the Norman version of events about how, you know, the events leading up to the promise and how he um, was supposed to get it and Harold's a bad guy um, and all the rest of it. So part of it is the bioembroidery, embroidery, which, you know, has probably as many unanswered questions as questions about it. But it certainly seems to have been made, um, ironically, by Anglo-Saxon artisans to um, represent this Norman view of, of these events Um, You know, at the same time, the Anglo-Saxons don't sit down and say, oh, this is great. We're so glad you're here. Um, There are actually uprisings for quite a long time. Um, And, you know, for at least 20 years, there are all these people rising up against them. Um, The area around Peterborough, in fact, you know, one of the reasons Peterborough is so late in the story is because that was one of the major reasons rebelling, regions rebelling against him all the time under Herod, the Wake and. The Peterborough monks, you know, are always backing the wrong guy because they're convinced that William's going to go, which was kind of a mistake, as you might imagine. But, um, you know, and and William does go and completely flatten Yorkshire and the herring of the north when that part of the country is rising up against him. And it's just devastated. And they say it's, you know, generations before the damage is repaired and food can be grown and things like that. So he does spend a fair amount of time kind of putting down these rebellions. But at the same time, um, in his um, ceremony to be um, crowned, he's very careful to use the ceremony that English kings had used, which I talk about. Um, The proclamation is the same proclamation. Um, He has it done in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day, you know, the the whole thing. So it looks very much like he's fitting in within this English tradition of coronation and ritual Um, And then there are ceremonies, loud ceremonies for him and his wife at Winchester and places like that, where he's again, you know, going to the same place. You go to Winchester at Easter for a crown wearing ceremony. You have this um, kind of ritual associated with it. um, And he's using all of the same language. So he doesn't you know, with a king, it's not really like you want to be number one, right? You're supposed to be inheriting it. Um, and part of the idea in the medieval mind was that if you won the battle, that probably means that God wanted you to win. That that's the divine providence part. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle also talks about, you know, basically we must have been really bad because. You know, this guy won. Like, what did we do? We really sinned, and this guy's now won. So, so there's this, in a way, almost acceptance of it as like, this is what God wanted to happen. Now, at the same time, um, you know, pretty. Quickly after the conquest, they we begin to see buildings go up. Anglo-Saxon buildings, we don't have a lot of good um, remains of those. Even when they were large, they like l- large in footprint or ground plan, they seem not to have necessarily been monumental on the scale of some of the buildings in Normandy or on the continent. Um, and so I know I have the statistic about some phenomenal number of buildings <laughs> is replaced within 20 years. Um, so these really enormous monastic buildings and cathedrals are built. Virtually every building is, is rebuilt. And then also um, there had been some castles because of um, Edward the Confessor, you know, actually grew up in Normandy. But really we see this enormous introduction of castles with these monumental stone structures um, coming with the conquest as well so you know i always say if you happen to have gone away on a long trip in 1066 and come back you know 20 years later it would be it would be like the invention of the skyscraper it would be unrecognizable the way the built environment was transformed quite rapidly um and you know they're really putting their mark on the territory you see um you know, some of the people who he's given lands to at, you know, like Castle Headingham, there's this enormous castle put up at other sites. They'll put up a castle and also patronize an abbey. Um, the the building I talk about the most in the book is Durham, um, w- which um, is a site of particular problems for him. I mean, Durham's the last big place before Scotland. And so you've always got to worry about the Scottish if you're at- um, and Durham, his the people he was putting into power, the Bishop of Durham, you know, they kept getting murdered um, basically by these local Anglo-Saxons. So finally he puts in William um, of Saint-Calais, as he's called to be Abbott, who's really shrewd. I mean, the first thing he does is he ships the Anglo-Saxon abbots from Durham right out of town and brings in a new batch who may be Anglo-Saxon, but they're not with ties to the local community. Um, and then um, William talks about the need to, like, restore, and, and part of that is William talking about the need to restore um, the um, foundation of Durham back to being a Benedictine abbey because it was founded by St. Cuthbert, one of the most important saints in England, a saint who um, rulers always came and appealed to his relics for endorsement. And so um, he takes these, they weren't Benedictines anymore, so he takes these Anglo Saxon lay clerks and sends them away and brings in these Benedictine monks and talks about how we're going back to Cuthbert We're going back to the real Durham. So again, it's this idea of continuity. He's very clever. And then he um, rebuilds this church um, for the shrine site of St. Cuthbert and also a castle right next door to it. Um, that's on the mound, right? Right immediately next to Durham, and Durham's it, Durham is really one of the biggest buildings ever. I mean, it's the walls are like ten feet thick. It's huge, the scale because of the bases are, start so high up off the floor. Um, so it's just overwhelming when you walk into it, and you really feel dwarfed. So it's really like nothing people would have seen before. And there, um, I think he is very clever about using um, motifs and ideas from um, conventional Anglo-Saxon buildings, like the decorations on the piers and the moldings, to create this very ornate container for the shrine that's on a kind of Norman scale and has an elevation similar to some buildings in Normandy, but then has all these other motifs that seem to come out of the Anglo-Saxon to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line
0: yeah i remember when i first uh, saw durham cathedral myself and it's you can you cannot miss it from any angle that you are traveling there it's it's so remarkable um and it, the train you know the train line is basically also going nearly around the whole the whole building um obviously not right next to the building but it's it's such a big um mark on the town that you can see it from from a, any angle um but what i found correct me if i'm if i'm wrong but i, I find it really um, interesting that um Hall Cudbert um Story because um, wasn't it also that Durham became a pilgrimage site after the Lindisfarne was uh, sort of attacked by the Vikings? So here you have attacking of the Vikings that needed needed you know all these poor monks uh, uh, f- they fled uh, Lindisfarne settled in in Durham uh, brought all this. Uh, um, Remains of the saint with them to establish the pilgrimage site, and uh, now the whole city became the Norman statement of 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 power. So it's quite interesting. Um, really, it is the ultimate
1: irony. That's that's yeah. absolutely right. Because um, they wander around for years trying to figure out where to settle. And, you know, they're claiming like, that Cuthbert's like, we're done. I'm staying here. You know, and they kind of stop. But it is. It's like a fabulous site because. um, you know, it's it's basically a peninsula with sheer cliffs surrounded by the river. Weir on three sides, so if the Vikings managed to get that far to the interior of England, I guess they thought they'd they'd be in a good position to defend themselves. So, yeah, I mean, uh,
0: quite interesting from from that angle. So you, yeah. s- you talk about um, Durham Cathedral. Um, you talk about um, other important um, cities um, in England that got this um, new uh, facelift, if you will, such as Winchester, Norwich, St Albans, uh, Burry St Edmunds. I mean, these are all extremely important um, locations that had, um, you know, century of history prior uh, Norman um, Normans arrived there, and would you say? These locations were targeted, if I may say, on purpose. So I guess where I'm going with this is also the symbolism of the location. So um, establishing your own rule in the locations that carry some sort of a symbol of the past uh, with them, because something um, similar would have happened then uh, also in Sicily.
1: Oh, no, I think that's absolutely what they're doing. You know, they want to show themselves to be... Continuing, I mean, even in Normandy, they're not really building on new sites so much until you get to Caen. Um, the other ones, like Jumiage, are rebuilt, Fecamp. Caen. But um, in England, I think that's absolutely the, I mean, apart from Battle Abbey, which is on the battlefield, you know, they're building on, like St. Albans is the first martyr, you know, Canterbury gets rebuilt. So it's always these sites that were really important that are now getting even grander, Um, kinds of um, containers for their shrines and for the monastic community as well. And he does, he does bring in um, monks, um, particularly abbots from Normandy to kind of, you know, keep, you want the church on your side basically, because that's part of your legitimacy and you don't want these monks rising up against you. So, you know, Canterbury in particular right away, you know, begins to get these people like St. Anselm and um, who have been working with him in Normandy, and he brings them over to be the head of the church in England as well, so that there's a clear alliance between his political rule and these major religious institutions. You know, that's part of what you see in the Bayer tapestry is like Stickens, the bad guy, who's the Anglo-Saxon bishop crowning, you know, crowning Harold, which, you know, he shouldn't be doing. So he gets the boot, certainly, <laughs> ultimately. I think there's only maybe one or two Abbots. The guy from Lister, I think, has left, but a lot of them get changed out right away. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the Bayeux Tapestry. Um, talking about uh, grandeur of architecture, here we have a grandeur of the textile. I mean, in a sense, it's it's huge. It's absolutely it impressive and uh, I've seen it displayed um, and it just goes meters and meters and meters of this of this textile and every time I see uh, such minute work um, craftsmanship I always feel who were these people that were tasked to do this how many people would have worked on this and for how long because this is such an impressive uh, textile with so much um, minute Work put into into it. Um, what's your take on on this uh, textile? Also, from art historical point of view.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, Anglo Saxons were really famous for their embroidery. Um, so really, there, it's, you know, it's it's kind of like having people tell the story of their takeover in their best medium, <laughs> you know, with the embroidery. Um, there's a lot of debate. I mean, most people think it probably comes from the area around Canterbury. Um, There are links with some manuscript tradition. There things about the language that link it with that as well. Um, then there's a lot of debate about the borders and whether the borders are subverting the major narrative, you know, as if there are these Anglo-Saxons kind of putting code in, but, you know, it's, it's hard to know, um, whether that's the case, um, and so it, it is very much in this Anglo-Saxon tradition, but the, the narrative the story is definitely pro-Norman. Um, there have been some suggestions that it might have been displayed um, in England. There are all kinds of views about how it was probably made for William's brother, Bishop Odo, who's his half-brother, um, who, become, who basically kind of serves as regent when William goes back to... Um, Normandy, and who has this kind of major kind of judicial judge position. And so, one suggestion is that the tapestry actually traveled around with him, or embro- I mean, technically, it's really an embroidery. Um, there's another person who recently suggested that um, it was in St. Augustine's Abbey, but probably the most convincing thing is actually Christopher Norton from York pretty recently did a very detailed study with the measurements of this and Bayeux Cathedral. And Odo is Bishop of Bayeux. Um, and although much of Byer's rebuilt, the basic footprint with the columns and stuff is the same, and kind of worked out how it would have fit within that cathedral, which is where it's it's ultimately found, um, and that it would have been a kind of setting for Odo in his in his home cathedral, which is which is certainly possible. But how long it, you know, how many people and how long it took, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's somebody who knows how long it takes to do. You know, the, Kind of embroidery, but I don't know about that that part of it. But the detail is really spectacular, and it's also, I mean, it's interesting because it's you know a, a piece of Norman propaganda produced by the oppressed, basically. But it also has these vignettes of everyday life. You know, you can see. Armor. You can see people at a feast. You can see what kind of boats. The boats are very much like Viking boats that you see them sailing across on. So it's it's this real window into what things look like at that time, and um, you know kind of what things and the whole thing with like Halley's Comet, where I mean it's obviously not called Halley's Comet in 1066, but you know they're pointing at the star, which we know was Halley's Comet that appeared. And the kind of observation of the natural worlds make it this great window into life at that time, as well as how the Normans want to present themselves is absolutely like this is this is what should happen because it's our country. It's legitimately our country. So,
0: yes, yeah, fascinating, definitely an incredible piece of um, you know, oh. medieval medieval propaganda as well as medieval uh, craftsmanship or artistry and. Um, I also find it fascinating that you say um, the Anglo-Saxons produced it for the Normans because this ties really beautifully with the uh, the cape, uh, the mantle for the Roger II in Sicily, which was equally produced by Muslim artisans. Uh, for the new usurpers, if we can call them like that, um, in, in Palermo. So it, it's definitely, I think, something to, uh, to connect in knowing that Normans were not just shrewd politicians, but they also recognized the value of art um, and, and selected the best of the best uh, for their own political agenda.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, when I started doing this project, you know, looking at building, you know, Normandy and England, you can make the connection between sources and things like that. But, you know, with Sicily, which, and we should say that it's not, it's not like William the Conqueror goes down and builds buildings in Sicily. It's basically um, younger sons and brothers who are not inheriting property um, within the aristocracy because it's primogenitor, um, who... You know, go off really as kind of mercenaries, and then end up um, having been hired by these independent Muslim little districts that are fighting against each other. At this point, um, they're hired as kind of mercenaries, but then realize you know that they can just take over for themselves and conquer southern Italy and Sicily. Um, so it's a different group of it's it's different people, specifically, although they retain. Um, contact with Normandy. We know that Norman monks come down, Norman chant come down. You know, everybody's kind of stopping off in Sicily anyway, because it's like the major point in the middle of the Mediterranean, whether it's for trade or going on to crusade. But um, you know, the, the, the kind of argument in the book is that even when things don't look the same, the kind of mental process they seem to be going through their approach to how do I represent myself as a legitimate ruler Um, when at best for William, it's questioned. And for the other two, you know, it's basically that they just squashed other people and got put into power. Um, You know, it seems to be the same kind of idea. You need to look like other kings. You need to um, become approved by the church and show yourself to be a Christian ruler. That seems to be really important. And you want to have this sense of continuity with earlier traditions, whether through sites or visual vocabulary. And um, you want to use a language that's familiar to other rulers who the Normans considered their peers, although I don't think the other rulers necessarily considered the Normans their peers so much, um, you know, so that, so that you appear to be a ruler. Um, and and this patronage, whether of the cloak or buildings or whatever else, is all part of that. Um, what goes on there? And the the cloak is uh, to me the cloak is really interesting because it's a type of garment that's not from Sicily. You know, as far as we know, um, Muslim rulers aren't wearing capes like that. That. You know, I talk in the book about how um, it's much more the Holy Roman Empire, Northern Europe, where you get these mantles. So that shape of garment doesn't seem to be something that the um, Muslim craftsmen at this workshop that was still there from um, the period of Muslim rule would have been familiar with. But then the technique of embroidery. Is the materials are unbelievably lavish. The pearls they now think came from the Eastern Mediterranean. I don't know how many thousands of those there are, as well as you know rubies and sapphires, the gold thread, cloisonné enamel plaques, you know, and then this phenomenal inscription in gold in Kufic script um, identifying. Um, the date, and that it was specifically made for for Roger, you know, kind of showing like I've really conquered you because I've even got your language on my on my cloak, which is called a coronation robe, but it was actually made after he was crowned. So he, I mean, I think he wore it, just not for other people wore it for their coronations, but not him. So, yeah. and it's pretty.
0: Uh, really uh, large so um, when when you see it display today uh, we can tell um, our listeners it is in, in Vienna in the uh, treasury there um, it, yeah it's huge it must have been also very heavy and it would cover the whole body so it would go all the way down to, to the floor um, so definitely something that would be used to, along with other uh, royal regalia for you know, some of those uh, processions or, um, yeah, uh, for no, absolutely. Uh, visits I mean, or, or something yeah.
1: like that. No, I measured, I, I took the measurements and if you were 6'2", it would like come down to like the bottom of your ankle. That's how big it is which is really big, you know, and as you say, it's really heavy. And then you'd have those, if you're wearing it, the, the lions on it are under your face, basically, on either side, which are this royal emblem. And Roger's often described as leonine in appearance, which doesn't mean he actually did look like a lion as much as that that's part of the association with a ruler. And then that tree of life, which is associated with paradise, is right down his spine at the back. So, I mean, that's part of what I talk about is that we always see it flat out, but it would be interesting to kind of make a copy and put it on somebody, you know, to see what it would actually look like on, you know, but, but it must have waited a ton.
0: Yeah, there are depictions, how they are supposed to, how the, the mantle supposed to look like yeah. when worn. We have Dürer's depiction about exactly. it.
1: And, exactly, exactly. Uh, we do, but I think it would be interesting to kind of do a 3D model
0: and show yeah. it. You know. Oh, yeah, definitely. We should, yeah. we should uh, initiate that so that we can play <laughs> around with it. I um, know. That, that would be fantastic. Well, we are nearly at the end of our talk today. And I'm um, Tanya Toller talking to Lisa Riley about her book, The Invention of Norman Visual Culture art politics and dynastic ambition. Um, So one of the elements at the end when you're discussing Sicily um, is also um, the reuse of material culture that precedes uh, Norman rule in Sicily, the use of spolia. Um, Mm -hmm. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about what would Roger particularly Roger II and William I and William II? What would they gain by using old material for uh, this new kingdom?
1: Well, um, I think they gained a lot. Um, The... Um, columns we think actually came from Rome itself. And the Capella Palatina, even though, I mean, there are Roman ruins all over Sicily, so it's not like you had to export, <laughs> you know, get exports. But I think it's um, it's something that we see others in the Mediterranean doing, first of all, like Hagia Sophia, um, other Byzantine churches, we see this reuse of Roman materials, the Dome of the Rock, you know, the first major Muslim site, um, Great Moscow, Damascus, earlier than this. So this idea, again, of continuity, of inserting yourself into the narrative. I mean, people do tend to refer back to the Romans as their ancestors quite often, but also as the kind of beginning of rule. You know, the whole Mediterranean has this common foundation of Roman culture. And so we see all of the, the major players, whether Byzantine, Um, Muslim or Western Christian like Roger using vocabularies from the Rome, from Rome, um, ancient Rome, as well as these materials. And then the use of porphyry, which is that dark purplish stone. The quarries have been lost that are in Egypt by this point. But we see him bringing um, porphyry which is, you know, the Romans were using in an imperial setting. And, you know, it's being broken up sometimes for pavements. It's being re carved, in his case, for sarcophagi. And he has this enormous porphyry disc put. So it's like basically right behind his head on the throne. Um, and then often you see porphyry columns right up by the altar, giving this kind of special imprimatur with that. So I think it's this idea that there's a familiarity with this language as a language associated with rule and elites that's common to everybody in the Mediterranean. Um, and so they they all use it, and he's just following in that kind of tradition in his use uh, um, of spolia. You know, I talk about how he literally uses it, and then sometimes it's like he's quoting from the past, too. I mean, they all do that. They kind of quote from the past in this more virtual way.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, what you touch um, upon here is to kind of look at this uh, joint language um, within the Mediterranean uh, middle-aged cultures rather than a um, singled out um, in combat type of thing uh, seen uh, culturally um, isolated uh, regions. And, and it's something that's been going on for the past um, decade or so with among art historians to, to sort of walk away from s- distinguishing Byzantine versus Islamic versus uh, Western um, European Latin cultures and trying to see this sort of uh, uh, joint um Expression of uh, Mediterraneanism, uh, so to speak, and uh, you speak about this in, in one of your concluding remarks as well.
1: Yeah, no, I, I feel pretty strongly that that kind of compartmentalization was, you know, of an or, which you know it partly. Re- you know, relates to colonialism, partly relates to the way art history itself was created and this focus on style. I mean, because basically something like Sicily, no, it didn't fit into any of those categories, which is why it was ignored. So understanding that there wasn't that kind of approach where, you know, only Muslims did X and only Christians did Y, there's no real evidence for this when you look at these buildings.
0: Yeah. Well, people live together, even when they're conquered. They they survive and they live together. Well, Lisa, we've taken up a lot of your time and we talked about... Normans in France and in England and in Sicily. For the final question, if uh, I may, I'd like to ask you what you would suggest to our listeners if they'd like to explore Norman culture firsthand, which location should they visit and why? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know, I know, I, I needed really to finish on a,
1: on a tricky question. <laughs> it is tricky. I mean, uh, I w- well, I would probably say two things. I would probably say Durham, is really spectacular and kind of seals the deal where we're building something like no one's seen before, but bringing all these other things in on a tremendous scale and reusing this site. And then also I would say you want to go to, I mean, there's a lot of Norman buildings in Sicily, not just the Capella Palatina, but the Capella Palatina is the place that really brings together these Byzantine craftsmen, these fabulous Mukarna ceilings, um, as well as the the spolia. And it's just visually so lavish. I mean, you don't know where to look first because it's so incredible. Um, and so that those would be, I'd have to do two, not one. I feel like, you know, on Desert Island Discs, I'm only supposed to pick one
0: thing. <laughs> but I'm going to say two. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I can assure you that it's an excellent uh, two suggestions, both very impressive and... Uh, I like to to say, and we, we studied them as, as a all rounded object. So it's not a, just a architecture an architectural uh, object, but an all rounded object with all the additions to it uh,
1: okay.
0: inside and outside. So Lisa Riley, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my book project. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And to you, our listeners, thank you. And till next time, uh, goodbye.